The reading will be from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Uncertainty often triggers anxiety and speculation. How do we view and respond to times of uncertainty without panic? The book of Revelation provides a lens to see our present day in light of what is to come. No matter what has happened or will happen, King Jesus always has the last word. So glad you're here. If you have a Bible, open it up to Revelation chapter 6. We are in a series on Revelation trying to get some of the important messages throughout this letter, throughout this book, the last word in the Bible, you might say, and certainly reminding us that Jesus has the last word, no matter what happens in this world. So Revelation chapter 6 will be our primary text today, at least where we start. We're going to try to cover a lot of ground today. Listen to these words of Scripture. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you will be encouraged when his glory is revealed, so that you will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, verse 13. I want you to focus on that phrase there that's highlighted. Participate in the sufferings of Christ. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you suffered for Christ? You've got to think about that, don't you? Most of us do. You might say, well, you know, I, uh, I spent a week at summer camp and they didn't have AC, and so I suffered for the cause of Christ. Okay. Or some of us might think, well, my Bible class stopped serving coffee, and you don't know how much I need coffee, so that was really, that was almost like persecution. In fact... Now I've got to stop by Starbucks and get my own coffee, which made me late to church, so I had to park way out there, so I had to walk a long way to get inside the church building. See, I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I wonder, do you, ever, do you ever feel guilty? Do you ever feel guilty for having a relatively comfortable life as a Christian? Especially in light of scriptures like 1 Peter 4, verse 13, that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. Let me clarify. We all experience pain and suffering at different times, on different levels, for different reasons. I don't want to minimize that. I, want, I don't want to discount that at all. But how much pain and suffering that comes our way is the direct result of our faith in Jesus Christ? Now, some of you may say, you don't know. You have no idea what I've gone through or what I am going through because I'm a Christian, because I'm trying to be authentic as a follower of Jesus. And you're right, I don't know. But I think for many of us, maybe most of us, we have no idea what it means to suffer, to truly suffer, to truly be persecuted. You know, maybe we have some awkward moments with neighbors or family members, or maybe there's a little bit of social embarrassment occasionally. Maybe we've missed out on some opportunities. Possibly we're not sure, but maybe. 
But most of us are not experiencing what Christians in places like North Korea or in places like the Middle East are right now. Do we really understand what it means to participate in the sufferings of Christ? Think about this. Persecution may not be a sign of one's salvation. It may be more of a sign of one's political and cultural context. And if that's the case, we are grateful that we live in a country that we have the freedom to assemble like this and that we live in a region of the country where Christianity is you know, pretty much understood, accepted. Yes, there are some exceptions, but let's be honest, it is fairly easy to be a Christian where we are. There's a lot of ringing here. I don't know if y'all can hear that. Maybe you could adjust that a little bit. It's fairly easy to be a Christian where we are. And we are thankful for that, aren't we? We should be thankful. We should embrace that and be thankful that we can assemble and that we can live our lives according to the values and the beliefs that we read in Scripture. We generally experience no systematic oppression for being followers of Jesus. But I wonder this. I wonder if the lack of persecution and hardship has produced in us a sense of entitlement and expectation. You see, I think for many of us, it's not so much that we want discipleship to be easy, we expect it to be easy. And any other version of discipleship, we don't put up with. We don't want to have something that is inconvenient or uncomfortable when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. And so if any form of opposition comes, if any form of pushback comes as a follower of Jesus, our first reaction is not somehow to embrace it as this is going to be a challenge, I won't enjoy this, but I'm not surprised because this world is not my home and this culture is not my culture. The kingdom of God has a different culture. Our first reaction is not to embrace it somehow. It is to say, wait a second. I don't deserve this. This isn't right. We need to do something. You see, there's a difference. Romans chapter 5 tells us that suffering produces perseverance. And I think that's true, and maybe you've experienced that in life. But I think it's also true that the lack of suffering often produces entitlement and complacency. Let me be clear. I don't think we need to go looking for trouble. <laughs> I don't think we need to pursue persecution. I think, as I said earlier, that we should embrace the freedom we have, embrace the blessings that we have. I think we should embrace the fact that it is relatively easy to be a follower, in, a follower of Christ right now in this place. Relatively easy. In fact, I think we should leverage all of those things to advance the kingdom of God. While we are in this relative time of peacefulness, again, relative, I understand there are challenges, there are obstacles, but let's be honest, it's, it's, it's not like it is in other parts of the country or other parts of the world, and maybe even other parts of the country for that matter. And so while we are in this relatively calm time where it's somewhat easy or at least easier to be a Christian. Let's leverage that to advance the cause of Christ, to build the kingdom of God, and to share our faith with others, especially those for whom it's not easy. But the Bible makes it very clear. 
this world is not our home. That there is more to life than this life. That we are on our way to our true home. So why would we expect to feel at home in a place that is not our home? That truth is abundantly clear throughout the book of Revelation. John's first century audience, probably at the end of the first century, understands what it means to be an alien, a stranger in this world. They understand what it means to be persecuted. Life is not easy for them. It's not relatively easy. It's not easy at all. It is difficult. And many of these people who are hearing these words read in their assemblies, who are, assemblies, who are getting this inspired word from God through his servant John, they know of brothers and sisters in Christ who have been killed, who have been martyred, maybe under the hand of the Roman Emperor Nero. They know family members, they know neighbors who have died and suffered because of their faith. And they know that that same fate is probably what they are facing under the Roman Emperor Domitian. They understand this. And so it's very real to them. When you talk about participating in the sufferings of Christ, that's not just something they read, that's not just some theoretical idea, that is daily life for them. So what do you say to them? What do you say to a group of Christians who are anchored in faith but holding on to a thread of hope? What do you say to Christians who are being oppressed by those in power who are misusing their power? What do you say to followers of Christ who are being persecuted, who are watching evil win the day all around them, what do you say? Do you say, you know what, this isn't right. You deserve more. You're entitled to a better life. You should stand up. You should do something. You should, you should storm the Roman emperor. You should take over the Roman government. You should do something about this because you don't deserve this. Or do you tell them what God told them? Or what did God tell them? That's what Revelation tells us. The sacred scroll that we talked about last week has a message, an important message for not only those first century Christians, but for us today. Quick review, chapter 4, the door opens, we enter into the throne room of heaven. God the Father is seated on the throne. Everything around the throne that has breath is worshiping God. God has something in his hand. It is a scroll. It has seven seals on it. It's an important message that explains and describes what life is all about. Not just this life, but the life to come. It helps us make sense of what is going on in our world. We need, we want to hear what the scroll has to say, but there is a problem. No one is found worthy to open the scroll. No one can undo the seven seals. But then we see, John tells us, he, he hears that there is one worthy. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the long-awaited Messiah. That is what he hears. What he sees is a lion, no, a lamb. A lamb that appears to be slain. Take the scroll. And in our minds, the primary image of Jesus is shifted from this mighty, forceful, earthly kingdom ruler which many people thought the Messiah would be, to the sacrificial servant of God who gave up everything. He is the one worthy to open the scroll. And then we begin 
to see what the scroll says. But first, there are these three sets of seven, these symbols. The seals that are on the scroll, trumpets that the angels are using, and seven bowls. And each of these is a series of symbols describing events that are happening in their day, events that will happen in a general way, events that are always happening in our fallen, broken world. But they are leading us somewhere because all of these events symbolized by these seals and trumpets and bowls are under the hand of God. And He is using everything to accomplish His purpose for justice in the world, for redemption of the world. And so I want us to skip, we'll come back to the first four seals in just a moment, but skip to the fifth seal. It stands for the martyrs who are crying out. We just read it a few moments ago. The martyrs who are crying out, those who have given their life for the cause of Christ. Chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord? holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And so we have these martyrs represented by this fifth seal. These are people, men and women, who didn't just die in the Lord. You know, that's a phrase we sometimes say at funerals. This person died in the Lord. These people didn't just die in the Lord, they died because of their faith in the Lord. And they have a question. They want to know whether justice will be served. There is something in the human heart that wants to be vindicated. When we have been wronged, we want things to be made right. And so they ask this question How long, Lord? How long? You see, you don't ask this question if the world is your home. If you're at home in this world, you don't ask how long because you want to stay here as long as you can because life is good here, it's comfortable here, and I think this is my reward right here. I will never ask how long if I'm happy where I am. But these are people who died because of their faith, and they want to know, God, how long until you vindicate us? How long until you avenge us? How long until you make things right, until you settle the score? How long do we have to live in the dark shadows of this world, not yet made new by the light of your love and truth? How long? Maybe you've asked that question before. How long do I have to suffer? How long do I have to be in grief? How long do I have to face this temptation? You go back to the Psalms, many of the Psalms of Lament ask this very question. Looking up to heaven, how long, Lord? Psalm 13 is a great example. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? That's the question these martyrs are asking. They want to know, was what we did and what we gave up worth it? When we see evil around us, when we are victimized by the evil in the world, God, how long before you make it all right? And what does God tell them? He says, wait a little longer. Did you catch that? Wait a little longer. And notice what's going to happen while they're waiting. 
more of their brothers and sisters in the faith are going to do what? They're going to die. Now, wait a second, God. That's not right. That's not fair. We didn't sign up for this. We are entitled to a better life. We're entitled to life. Once again, we're reminded that this world is not our true home. That we are not primarily citizens of this nation or of this planet as it is right now. If so, we will make ourselves home here. We will get comfortable here. We won't long for heaven. We won't long for eternity. We won't ask how long. We'll just say, man, this is great right here. I've said this before, but I remember being a kid and, and, you know, the older guys would come up to pray at church and they'd say, come quickly, Lord, and I'd be sitting out there going, no, wait, wait just a second. You've lived all of your life. I've got a lot of life left to live. You know, not so fast. Now, hopefully I've matured and grown in my faith since then. I've also gotten older. But when we view this world as our home, we aren't ready to leave it. We aren't asking that question. God says, wait a little longer. So now back up. And let's look at the first four seals. And we'll understand where this question comes from. Remember, these are symbols. Symbols of events unfolding in their world at that time and in the world to come. And so at the beginning of chapter 6, tells us about the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? It is. These are referenced in Old Testament books of Zechariah and Ezekiel. So the first horse is a white horse, and its rider is carrying a bow and wearing a crown. And many have thought, well, that's got to be Jesus. But really, Jesus there doesn't fit that context. Really, it seems more like it's, it's maybe an emperor or a ruler, an earthly ruler, someone with power, obviously royalty, but also with strength and might. And it's someone, the text says, who is all about conquest, about using power to oppress others. The second horse is fiery red, and it is more conflict and chaos, warfare. It is, as the text says, removing peace where there should be peace. And then the third horse is a black horse. Its rider is carrying a set of scales representing economic struggles in famine and in equity. The fourth horse is a pale horse. And in case you can't get your mind around the symbolism, he just comes out and says it. Its rider is death. The rider of the fourth horse is named death. All that to say evil is running rampant in our world. There are and will be wars and famines and natural disasters and death and destruction and struggles. In fact, the sixth seal, a little bit later, will talk about an earthquake, reminding us that, yes, there are things that happen in our world that are beyond our control and that cause us to suffer greatly. And that, of course, is for those who are in faith and those who have no faith. As we know, at the end of Revelation, God is making all things new, but we aren't there yet. And so what does God say? To the martyrs, he says, hang on, wait a little longer. That's the first message we need to hear from the text. I want us to see this text from three different perspectives. First of all, from those who are faithful followers of Jesus, faithful believers. But secondly, those who are faithless unbelievers or non-believers, those who are outside of Christ. And then third, 
a vantage point that says, how do these two come together? Where do these two perspectives intersect? What opportunities do we have as faithful people to reach the faithless? So for those who are faithful Christians, maybe we aren't facing direct persecution like they were at the end of the first century or like they are in places like Afghanistan or North Korea, but certainly we all agree that we are witnessing evil in our world, and many times we are victimized by the evil. And as was said earlier, we participate in the evil of the world. Let's be honest. And so what is the message for those who are in the faith? We've already said it. Let's say it again. Wait. Wait a little longer. It is a message of patient, patient perseverance. Find blessing in sharing in the sufferings of Christ, whatever that looks like. Because when you do that, you identify with Christ, who also did not consider this place his home. Find peace in knowing that evil may win the day, but Jesus has won the war. You see, rugged patience produces real perseverance. So hang on. Wait a little longer. The truth is, God is aware of all the misdeeds of mankind. He knows the perpetrators. He knows who has oppressed others. He knows hearts that have turned away from Him. He knows people who serve self rather than others. He knows those who are hateful and vengeful. Those who use power to victimize other people, those who exploit children, those who do wrong. God knows, and he will make things right. He will settle the score. Just wait. Which brings us to our second perspective, our second vantage point. point. Those who are without faith, those on the outside of Christ. This is what he says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So for the faithless ones, the day of the Lord is coming, and there will be no place to hide you can try to hide in the caves, you can run to the mountains, but you cannot escape the judgment of God. Sometimes in this life, certainly in the next life. And so what's the message here to those who are outside of Christ, to those who are faithless, unbelievers? Here's the message. Wake up. Wake up. This is a wake-up call. These things that are happening in our world, let them be a wake-up call to show you that the day of the Lord is coming. That judgment is coming. Now people sometimes get bent out of shape. They say, ah, wait a second, how can a loving, good God send people to hell? That doesn't make sense. And I get the question. But God doesn't send people to hell. He is simply allowing people to choose their eternal destiny. Isn't he? The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. First for the Jew, then, then to the Gentile, Romans 1.16. Everyone. God is love. And love doesn't force people. 
It doesn't coerce people. Love gives freedom. And you and I have the freedom to choose who we will make Lord of our lives. Will we claim Caesar as Lord? Will we put ourselves on the throne and claim ourselves as Lord? Or will we claim the one true Lord? Jesus is Lord. You might say, oh, well, we have options, right? Well, whatever you claim as Lord doesn't make that Lord. He doesn't make that a reality. The reality is Jesus is Lord. But God says you get to choose. And there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. So if you have not confessed faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not been clothed with Christ in baptism, don't wait any longer. I'm not trying to scare you into heaven or scare you out of hell. The truth is, love is a much better motivator. But I do you a disservice by not telling you the truth about what is to come. Revelation is all about what's happening now in light of what is to come. And here's what's to come, the day of the Lord. And judgment will be for all of us. And none of us is good enough to pass the test. But the difference is, those who are in Christ... And we're going to talk about this next week. Do you remember what he gave them? The martyrs? He gave them what? A white robe. Those who are in Christ receive the blessing of eternal life. Those outside of Christ? Not going to happen. It's easy to ignore warnings, isn't it? I've heard that before. Not sure I believe that. We ignore warnings all the time. You know, during storm season around here. The meteorologists come on and they say, tornado warning, tornado watch, severe storm, what do we, yeah, we'll see. You know, you get on the airplane, the flight attendant, before you take off, grabs the card, grabs the oxygen mask, goes over all the rules, the safety guidelines, here's the warnings, eh, I've heard that before, I'll be fine. <laughs> we can sit in this building right here, as we did a few years ago, a fire alarm will go off and we'll just look at each other like, what do we do? Should we do something? What do we do? <laughs> we like to ignore warnings. Maybe some of the things happening in our world, the things that we don't necessarily enjoy, maybe they're a wake-up call reminding us that the day of the Lord is coming. Now the third vantage point to consider. How do these two perspectives intersect? Where's the overlap? Those who are faithful followers of Jesus and those who are faithless unbelievers. To answer that, we need to go back to the text and look at the second series of seven. Remember, there were seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. These events that are taking place, that will take place, that God is using to accomplish his purpose of justice in the world and redemption in the world. And so these seven trumpets describe what the text calls plagues. And if you have been around the Bible or church very long, when you hear plague, you probably think of one thing. Pharaoh, Egypt, ten plagues, right? Very similar language used here. And the purpose of those plagues back in Exodus was to get Pharaoh to change his heart. It was to get him to change his heart, to change his mindset about God and God's people, to do something different than what he was doing. The same purpose is in these plagues. Chapter 9 of Revelation, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. 
When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke of a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Now things are getting interesting, aren't they? (laughs) We got this crazy swarm of locusts that are haunting people, especially godless people. They're bringing about God's judgment on people. Remember our earlier question? Why would God's, a loving God send people to hell? Well, again, that's not what God wants. And the purpose of the plagues wasn't primarily to punish people. The purpose of the plagues, just like it was for Pharaoh, was to see a change of heart. It was all about repentance. It was about opening their eyes. It was that wake-up call we mentioned earlier. That's the purpose of the plagues. But just like in Pharaoh's day, it didn't work. And it still doesn't work. So many people, like Pharaoh, choose to harden their hearts to God. In fact, they interpret the events of the world against God. How could God do this to us? You see, the real plague that we see is the plague of pride, personal pride, that becomes an obstacle of faith. And so we have this summary at the end of chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands, and they did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their theft. So here is the message that aligns with our third perspective the intersection of the faithful followers of Jesus and those without faith. And the word is this, witness. Witness. God sends us a wake-up call all around us every day to see him, to be drawn to him. And he tells us who are faithful to wait patiently, but we don't just wait passively. We don't just sit and twiddle our thumbs and say, one day we get to go to heaven. You see, the point of intersection here is we have a calling. We have been commissioned to bear witness to Jesus, to those who do not know Jesus, because there is a lost and dying world all around us. And rather than lashing out at them or saying they are the source of my discomfort and I don't deserve this, what if we chose to bear witness to Jesus for them? What if we chose to share faith with them? Second Peter verses 9 of chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, that's God's heart. 
God waits for the day of the Lord because he wants people to come to repentance. Well, how how is that going to happen? It's going to happen when God's people begin to share their faith and help bring people to repentance. Now, I can't make someone change their heart and their life. Only God can do that in the spirit of God. But I can open the door and I can embody the gospel and I can share the gospel with them and share the truth with them in love. And so can you. Our job is to be a witness to the eternal truth and the profound love of Jesus to witness to them. As was mentioned earlier, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And there are many symbols that come out of that story and that day and that tragedy. There's so many symbols that are embedded in so much meaning. But one of the symbols you may not know about is a simple red bandana. It belonged to a young man named Wells Crowther. His father had given it to him when he was only six years old and told him to keep up with it, that it was important, that he could use it to blow his nose, but it was important to keep up with. And so he did. This young man kept it with him all the time. When he was 16, he volunteered at the Empire Hook and Ladder Company where his dad worked. He had it with him. When he played lacrosse at Boston College, he wore it under his headgear. And he had it with him when he got a job on the 104th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center as an equities trader. Which was really interesting because that is a world of pressed handkerchiefs and expensive suits. And here's this 24-year-old guy with a red bandana. And as you can guess, he had it with him on September the 11th, 2001. When that airplane exploded into the South Tower below his floor, and it set him into motion. Below him, several floors down, was a young lady named Lynn Young. She was blasted off of her feet onto the ground. When she came to and opened her eyes, she couldn't see anything because her glasses were covered in blood, and she wiped them off, and she began to see around her what was happening, and there was just death and destruction everywhere, and she knew, this is it, I'm a goner. And by that time, Wells had made his way down there, and that's what she saw. She saw a young man wearing a red bandana over his nose and mouth, and he said to her, are you okay? Let's go. And he helped her up, and he helped others up, and they made their way to the stairwell, And they went down 17 flights of stairs to reach firefighters who were on their way up. They received that young lady and the other victims there, and they took them down 20 more flights into elevators that actually still worked. But Wells didn't go with them. He went back up. He encountered another woman and several more people on a floor that were badly injured. And he said, can any of you stand up? If you can stand up, stand up and let's go and help those people around you. And he helped another lady. They get to the stairwell, they go down, and they're received again by a group of firefighters coming up. But he didn't stay there, and he didn't go down. He went back up. He went back up to help more people. Wells Crowther never made it out of the South Tower. He didn't survive. But his bandana did. And now it's on display in the 9-11 Museum as a symbol of sacrifice, a symbol of service, 
a symbol of commitment to save others. You see, the truth is, we live in a world that has fallen. There is evil in our world. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, they are charging through the world, and they are leaving a wake of destruction behind them. And we see that and experience that. And what does God say? He says, wait a little longer. Wait a little longer. To those who are faithful, be patient. Through your suffering, you will encounter perseverance, so wait a little longer. And if you don't know Christ, if you're outside of Christ, then let this be a wake-up call. You need Jesus. But for His people, we have an opportunity to live lives of service and sacrifice, doing what we can to save others. That's why we're here. We're not here to be comfortable. We're not here to be happy. Those things are nice. And again, we can leverage those things to advance the cause of Christ. But that's not why we're here. We are here to embody and share the gospel. God wants all to come to repentance. If today you need to come to repentance, a change of heart, a change of life, claim Jesus as your Savior, be baptized, clothed with Christ, then please don't wait any longer. If you need to renew your commitment to Christ, then do that. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. and A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor, a room right behind me. You can go there. They'll pray for you and encourage you. You can come down to the front. If you're online, you can go to our website and reach out at the prayer page. We want to be an encouragement to you because we do live in a broken world, and it gets discouraging sometimes, doesn't it? And we say, how long, Lord, how long? And he says, wait a little longer. And trust that he will make all things new. If we can help you today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. My